Once again, it's a podcast about media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills. If you'd like to find me on Twitter, I'm at TA underscore Mills. And I am joined this week, as ever, by my co-host, Dan Hind. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello. I'm extremely well. And I'm on Twitter at Dan Hind. So we're doing this for the follows. So if you're not following us yet, follow us now. Um, Yes, please do. So, Tom, we took a break last week. Um, yeah, and we're back this week with an interview with Will Davis, and we'll be talking to Will about the politics of data profiling, about Cambridge Analytica, about Brexit, Trump, and much else besides. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a terrific interview. But while we have been away, there's been no shortage of media democracy type news and developments. We're not going to talk about them in detail now. It's quite a long interview we've got with Will. But if, if our listeners are interested in uh, looking at uh, Labour and its alleged anti-Semitism problem, then we would recommend you go and listen to uh, episode 15 in this first series, which is an interview um, with Jane Stern-Wiener about an earlier scandal or, or controversy over anti-Semitism and Labour. And also to look at, which was it, the, I think it was perhaps the first... Um, episode in the second season uh, where we looked at conspiracy theories. Um, yeah, that's right. It was our first our first episode back. So we chatted a bit about conspiracy thinking, how we should deal with it, and I think we did briefly touch on anti-Semitism within conspiracy theory there. Yeah, we um, did. I mean, it's a, but it's... we did a good show with Jamie about uh, so uh, Stern Viner, by the way, not Viner. Um, just in case people wanted to. Um, pronounce his name correctly uh it was a discussion about jamie's work which has sort of been looking in detail um of allegations of anti-semitism and particularly trying to examine the veracity of the claims basically which is was was obviously about the previous allegations so it's, it's slightly different but i think it's probably quite illuminating um in terms of what's going on at the moment in any case yeah i think so i mean this is obviously these are these are vast topics and we could only really um, scratch the surface of uh, uh, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory um, in our conversation about conspiracy theories. Um, but uh, the, the issue of conspiracism on the left is, is an important one. Um, like all, all things where uh, enlightenment seems imminent, uh, it's very easy to, uh, to find oneself deceived. So, as I say, yeah, maybe worth checking out those previous episodes. Um, but this week, we're going to be talking to Will Davis. So, shall we roll tape, as they say? Let's do it. We're joined now by Will Davis, who's a reader in political economy at Goldsmiths, uh, part of the University of London. Um, Will is the author of The Happiness Industry and a number of other books. And he's also written a piece recently in the London Review of Books on the implications and significance of the Cambridge Analytica story. Um, we'll be talking, hopefully, a- across a range of topics uh, today, but we'll start, I think, with um, some some sort of general thoughts on the way that story has emerged and, and what we are to make of it. It's obviously it's something that's just changing uh, almost day by day. There's a great deal of coverage about it. But, Will, we, we're speaking now on... Um, Thursday, I think it's Thursday, twenty ninth. What's your What's your sense of where this story now is leading? Well, the, the the problem with the story is that there's there's sort of three or four or more different implied scandals all tangled up with each other. There's a there's an overspending scandal um, or an allegation rather that has been made against aspects of vote leave um, and its relationship to other. Um, uh, sort of pro-Brexit 
campaigns uh, in 2016, there is a, uh, a potentially illegal data sharing um, uh, allegation uh, being made against um, uh, a Cambridge psychologist called Alexander Kogan, who used um, a data, uh, an app as part of Facebook to pass uh, data onto Cambridge Analytica, there is the sort of broader shock and sort of scandalous nature of Donald Trump as a, as a, and his and his victory in 2016. Um, so there are sort of all these things going on at once. And I think, I mean, the Observer newspaper has been uh, the main um, source of the of the stories. It's been digging uh, around this all of this for um, over a year now. Uh, there's also in the background is. The whole question of of, of um, sort of grey um, money from the likes of Robert Mercer, the hedge fund billionaire, um, and Open Democracy has also done some very good work in trying to expose some of the money that fl flowed around in the background of the uh, of the Brexit referendum um, and its potential ties to. Um, things going on in the United States. Um, then, of course, there was the Channel 4 expose undercover reporters showing that Cambridge Analytica were also quite into kind of dirty tricks and uh, all that sort of stuff. So I think the problem with the story all along has been, been the sense that there's kind of sort of too many um, allegations, uh, a sort of a, a sense of, a, of, a, um, of some sort of international conspiracy going on. But um, it's never been entirely clear what the main... Um, object of investigation is. Now, maybe that's kind of how investigative journalism has to work, um, but um, it, it certainly created a sense of slight confusion, certainly on, on my part, but I think I'm not the only one to, to be slightly mystified as to, as to what exactly we're meant to be looking at exactly. Um, now, in terms of where the story is going now, I mean, it's moving day by day, and each time, um, uh, you know, the, the focus of the media shifts the whole time. It shifts from Facebook to Cambridge Analytica and then to Dominic Cummings and, the, and Vote Leave and so on. So it's moving the whole time. But, I mean, look, I hope I'm wrong, but I would, my prediction is that by the summer, um, we're going to be maybe not talking about completely unrelated things. I think that the whole question of Facebook's power is going to still be there. But I think that within a few months, I think a lot of this stuff is going to fizzle out. I, I, I certainly can't see it leading to any serious um, consideration of a second refer referendum on Brexit or anything like that. Um, so it's not that I'm, I'm it's not that I'm cynical about the reporting. I mean, I have great admiration for what the Observer's doing, but at the same time, I do think that it's rather too tied up with some quite kind of emotional aspects of, 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 of anti-Brexit politics that means that you know sometimes it, it gets exaggerated in certain quarters as, as to um, uh, you know what the political implications of this are. I mean, it's interesting you talk about the sort of superabundance of scandals that are sort of tied into it. There's also, I think, there, as you speak, it seems there are there are conflicting agendas in, as it were, trying to make sense or trying to establish the significance of the story. Because, as you say, there's a strong Remain contingent that want to see this as casting doubt on the referendum result. Mm -hmm. um, I also see the the the, um, the government, the elected politicians. Um, in the UK, wanting to use this as a, a stick with which to beat Facebook. Um, so the manoeuvrings by Matt Hancock um, de demanding the presence of Zuckerberg in London, it, it's kind of of a piece with recent shenanigans where British politicians, I think, went to Washington and demanded hearings with technology executives there. So there's this kind of, there is, it seems, this is a sort of, drum that I keep banging, but it seems to me there is this tussle going on uh, between elected politicians and the, the digital platforms as to um, as to how they use these platforms or how these platforms can be infiltrated and used by, as it were, um, marginal or um, un unauthorized actors. And this is, I think, a theme. You know, why? You know, how did how was Trump made possible? How was Corbyn made possible? How is Brexit made possible? I mean, there is a sense in which these platforms are implicated in a, in a, in a moment of, of deep turbulence. Um, whether, whether, they're, whether they're the kind of, as important causally as, as they're made out to be is another matter, but certainly I think politicians want to bring them to heel. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you think there's any grounds for thinking that, or, or am I racing ahead of the evidence? 
No, I mean, I, you know, I think personally, I, I'd be delighted if politicians brought them to heel. They should be brought to heel. But I, I mean, obviously, there's there's different. Um, Matt Hancock isn't really in a position to bring them to heel. I mean, you know, the, the um, you can demand Zuckerberg comes to comes to the select committee and then throw up your hands in horror when he when he says no. But I mean, unfortunately, that's a as a kind of accurate representation of where power lies in amongst all of this. Um, so um, I don't, I mean, I, I, I think that the, the question is what, what is the, the problem with these, with the platforms? And, um, you know, we can say that they, are they subverting democracy? Well, they're subverting democracy in certain ways because they are exerting, I think, a, a dangerous effect on the rest of the, the media climate in the sense that they, you know, they, 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 um, Facebook in particular has huge power over is, is, you know, is exerting huge power over the um, uh, advertising um, uh, market that newspapers have been dependent on until um, recently, um, and they can basically uh, set the terms by which newspapers. Um, get their content viewed to um, a, a, a rising extent, and that is, I think, um, very worrying. Um, and you know, Facebook has, um, depending on how many, we don't know exactly how many of these users are, are, are sort of uh, outs and duplicates and bots and so on. But they have two billion uh, registered accounts, and the average amount of time people spend on Facebook a day, according to Facebook, is fifty minutes. So this is a a, a domination of the world's attention that's never been seen before. And that clearly has very worrying implications for democracy, for the media, for um, long-standing ideals of the public sphere. Now, you might say those, those ideals were always a bit of a sort of liberal fantasy anyway, but nevertheless, um, maybe <laughs> the sort of, you know, a, 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 a kind of liberal public sphere of the BBC and, and newspapers and Channel 4 and so on is still something worth <laughs> sort of hanging on to and, and, and fighting for in the face of an alternative which is dominated by um, a, a company with very low levels of transparency in which one man still has uh, effectively majority um, uh, control of uh, majority voting rights um, over it. Um, and so, I mean, there is something really quite quite worrying going on. What exactly would lead someone like Matt Hancock to target these companies? I'm not quite sure. I don't think, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, one of the problems with claiming that, that these companies sort of have led to cheating in, in, in campaigns is that it does... You know the implication of that is is always that that people who vote for Trump and Brexit are stupid and and sort of can be kind of have their brains washed basically, and that's always a very difficult that's always going to be a very difficult sort of thing to sell because no one is claiming that um, that the, the Leave campaign didn't didn't get fifty two percent of the vote. So are they claim you know how many of those votes are are the Observer claiming? Uh, were won through sort of fake news or propaganda or clever messaging and so on. I think actually that a lot of a lot of Remainers are, are just still deeply unhappy for reasons that you know we can all understand by the amount of lies that that campaign told basically. But a lot of those lies were told in public. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove weren't shy of standing up in front of a bus with three hundred fifty million pounds a week on it. That was all over the six o'clock news. That happened in public, and it and it worked. So I think it's a sort of there's a kind of ten temptation to think that, well, it must have all happened in secret and something underhand must have happened. The fact is that the lies were public, they worked, um, and, you know, we are leaving the European Union. And that, that still is something I think that has a kind of a, a sort of jarring effect that um, certainly sort of remain um, uh, supported. I voted remain myself, but I, I, I'm not sort of one of these people who thinks that we have to sort of do anything we possibly can to, to overturn that vote. Um, but I think there's, you know, there are all sorts of other things swirling around it than this. I mean, Dan, maybe you want to come back on this point about what role you 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 see the politicians playing in relation to these platforms, and and whether that's potentially, you know, um, a negative or a positive outcome. So it sounds like you're from different um, coming from different perspectives on that. I mean, I, I I agree, if you will, about this this question of um, you know the lies that were told during the referendum. I mean, but the problem with this is that really, as far as I can tell, what what we're seeing in the case of the the Leave campaign and some of the exposes that have taken place is an adaption of classic kind of strategies of political propaganda, which have played a role in all kinds of um, elections, which I don't like the outcome of. But then the question becomes, okay. How, what what control should there be over misleading messages that are delivered during uh, electoral campaigns? Because you know that's been part and parcel of 
um, elections, you know, as um, a long time before social media took place. And it seems to me that what we're seeing now is a combination of uh, elements of sort of classic political propaganda, spin, political persuasion, outright lies, uh, which, you know, in the case of, for example, you know, the, the electoral victories of the Thatcher government or the more recent coalition and conservative government, and of course, New Labour being notorious for um, spin and misleading messaging and being economic with the truth or whatever kind of euphemisms you want to use. I mean, these have been part and parcel of um, political campaigning and opinion management a long time before Facebook. So it's hard to see at what point we invalidate electoral outcomes on the basis of our public sphere, as it were, not being, um, well, like you say, the ideal Habermasian public sphere. You know, at what point does that delegitimise electoral outcomes? Yeah, I mean, the problem is, so there are these techniques that are um, uh, relatively, they're not sort of unheard of, but they are something that the, 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 the massive expansion of Facebook has, has made more possible of, of micro-targeting and this psychographic profiling and so on. And, and the problem with these techniques is not that they're incredibly smart and effective. It's that we don't know how smart and effective they are. I mean, that's the problem, is that we don't know how effective something like Cambridge Analytica is in the sort of... That's why it kind of swings between these two poles of their sort of marketing bullshit saying that we basically kind of won the Trump election just using our data analytics through mm-hmm. to um, a sort of probably a you know an equal oh well it was all to do with you know sort of globalization and the offshoring of of manufacturing jobs I mean clearly there is a mixture of the cultural the economic and aspects of um, of, of, of what you might call propaganda or, or, or sort of messaging and so on. I mean, campaigns are mixtures of these sorts of things. And the, but the problem with the with the third is that it's possible to understand the class dynamics of the Midwest, and it's possible to understand the uh, uh, the, the racial politics of Trump and so on. And people have written in very very illuminating ways about this. It's not possible to quite without doing some really very long term and and deep investigative and ethnographic and um, sort of um, sort of well the kind of work you would need to do to get inside studying kind of algorithms and, and techniques that would take far longer than we've had so far and require far le- greater levels of access than we've had so far to quite understand what these companies are really doing so what that then does is that secrecy is the is the ground in which conspiracy theories grow is that co- political societies and cultures that, that have powerful secret forces in them generate conspiracy theories and in a sense I mean, it might be unkind to say that the observer is, is, is peddling conspiracy theories, but they're certainly looking for a conspiracy. I mean, whether they are sort of theorising that conspiracy is, 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 is a sort of moot point, but, but they certainly they certainly seem to assume that there is a conspiracy going on and they're trying to track it down. And, and, and the, the sense that there is a conspiracy is something that, that emanates from from living in a in a society where power operates in secret, and so and that's not the observer's fault. That Facebook is a secretive force, and Cambridge Analytica is, is clearly a secretive force, but it, it also seems to be a rather sort of perhaps a bit of a flash in the pan as well. Facebook clearly isn't a flash in the pan. So I think that's the problem: is that we don't know what 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 messages have gone out. Whereas if Thatcher or Blair put out a message that was rather mendacious. Everyone could point to it and see it. And, and when Johnson and Gove stood in front of their bus, everyone could see the lies. Um, and the lies with, with Johnson and Gove was, was slightly more kind of extreme than, than, than what Blair might have engaged in. But nevertheless, it could happen. Now, of course, I mean, secrecy has, has, has done great damage to the legitimacy of, of governments for hundreds of years um, and of course the Iraq war was something that was premised on uh, on on, an, on intelligence findings that later turned out to be um, false and some people believe that they were always known to be false sometimes some people believe that they were believed to be true and later discovered to be false so I mean you know war and secrecy and intelligence do damage to the integrity of the liberal public sphere and they have done really since um, since Napoleon, actually, I mean, so this is a um, this is in that sense, it's not new. But I think that social media and data analytics push this further into the realms of, of political campaigning in the public sphere and turn those who once were liberals who said, you know, we have parliament, we have a free press, things will ultimately be okay. They suddenly become the conspiracy theorists because they're the ones saying, oh my God, you know, we have no idea why these people won and these people lost. We simply can't know, which I don't think is true either. Yeah. Um, so, 
we've, we're sort of in a situation really, really where, I mean, I think a lot of this is, is being driven, like you say, by this kind of, this, this anxiety and uh, broader liberal anxiety about particular political upheavals that have taken place. And it seems to me, I mean, this is a point I made in the, wrote a piece in The Independent from this, is that a lot of the same sort of cluster of um, concerns uh, were appearing around the, this kind of question of fake news. You know, what is going on here? Is, it, is, it, is the problem here that people are able to operate through these social media platforms? Is it that people are lying in public, like Trump, you know, with his just complete disregard for reality? Is the problem that we have... Uh, political movements that are fundamentally irrational, like all these things seem to sort of merge together, but it's never really clear what claims being made. I mean, I think this kind of happens with other public scandals, though. You know, if you think of something like the Iraq War or um, the Leveson Inquiry, what you have is a whole set of um, actors and interests kind of coalescing around um, different points, and we try and figure out, okay, what's going on here? At what point was any particular rule broken? Um, has somebody crossed the legal line? And that's kind of how I think journalistic approaches to these scandals kind of work. Like in the background, you have all this sort of almost sociological analysis of, um, of change and social change and interest. But ultimately, there's usually this with journalism an attempt to tie it to a particular story where somebody does something that's clearly wrong and that sets in in train a series of events. That seems to be what's kind of missing or maybe not quite there with the Cambridge Analytica story. They do have, they are describing a lot of interesting things. It's just like, okay, well, what's the heart of this story? I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, maybe it's not a bad thing that journalists don't need to point to a smoking gun or something like that. And they can actually describe and try and understand events. I mean, but whether the story is effectively doing that is, I guess, another kind of question, really. I, th I think there, there are just two things I'd, I'd say about that. One is, um, I think that what's curious about this story, and I, I think this might reflect on the nature of, of, of sort of newspapers as ha the, the financial viability of newspapers, is that I think that I th surely it would be better for. I don't know if it'd be better, but let's just consider this. I mean, what you know, if if um, the Observer had been investigating this story for 18 months or two years basically themselves in secret in the way that investigative journalism um i, I mean y you guys would know more about the sort of perhaps the sort of the norms and the history of investigative journalism but you know the sort of classic kind of watergate case um there's a lot of you know a lot, a lot, there's a lot of kind of going quite sort of underground keeping quite quiet and then coming up when you've got something um, whereas this is a sort of week by week by week. I mean, the Observer has not every single week, but this has been something where you know each week they have another they have another allegation, which then seems to sort of shape aspects of the news agenda for the, for the following days. But then you know then Dominic Cummings comes back with a blog post and sort of contradicts bits of it, and then they, they come back and contradict it. So it becomes a sort of it's a it's an investigation that is itself going on in the public sphere. Um, involving kind of claim, counterclaim, counter-counterclaim, and so on. So it's a bit like a sort of ongoing sort of, you know, Twitter spat or something like that, only with obviously far more kind of, you know, I'm not saying there aren't facts being kind of mobilised and so on, but it, it, it's not like something which, you know, where someone can be paid for a year to, to sort of, you know, stay with something and, 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 and really kind of get to the bottom of something. It seems to constantly sort of be, be coming up for, the, for air the entire time. And I think that really changes the nature of the story and it states in the public sphere that's one thing i think the, the the second thing is that there is ultimately there is a new elite at the, at the core of this story that, that lends it a kind of exoticism um and a sort of sense of kind of almost a sort of mysticism i think which is the elite of the um of, you know of, of, of the data analysts so you know you've got this guy christopher wiley with his pink hair and um sort of sitting in the select committee and he's sort of you know he's a type of elite that was not at the centre of the Leveson inquiry. I mean, everyone. The great thing about Leveson inquiry it was sort of pantomime villains from from back in the day. I mean, it was all the same old faces. It was quite and Coogan was there, and yes. Burdock was there, and all this sort of stuff. Whereas there's this sort of new idea of this sort of data analyst who is kind of a magician who. Um, you know, it has not really been seen at the centre of public life before. Now, um, they, you know, their skills derive from mathematics and from physics. They put these skills to work. You know, you read a book like Cathy O'Neill's brilliant Weapons of Math Destruction, and it tells the story of how these tools have been put to work in 
credit rating, in Wall Street, in policing, in, you know, mortgage applications determined by behavioral analytics, all this sort of stuff. And it's been going on, but it's never really sort of popped up in the middle of Westminster before or in the middle of the BBC News before. And I think that's part of the thing is is this sort of sense of kind of wonder at these kind of strange um, people who have been sort of crunching very, very large quantities of data using techniques that derive from a combination of the world of physics, from the world of military intelligence, and so on. Then once you've got kind of people like Robert Mercer and Alexander Nix hovering in the background, the whole thing starts to seem like a sort of uh, a kind of hacking of democracy by something utterly alien to 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 civil society. Now, in some ways, that, that is true. I mean, it is the case. I mean, there's a very good piece by Adam Ramsey in Open Democracy um, published uh, yesterday about the kind of confluence of, of, of military um, propaganda, uh, commercial services, which, you know, sort of mercenary companies that in the past have been put to work in, in war zones for influencing opinion and so on, are being now being used in political campaigning. So I'm not denying that is going on, but I think that some of the media reaction is, is, is partly born out of the sheer novelty and shock that these techniques have finally arrived on our doorstep. It's, mm, it's a mm. point. We had um, on the show a few weeks back um, a guy called uh, Christopher Simpson who and talked about how a lot of the the kind of expertise in um, political communications. I mean, in the nineteen even the nineteen twenties, as they found their way into academia, had come via um, come via the military and intelligence. Right. So it's, it's interesting, you know, that that Adam Ramsey piece, which yeah, people should. Should go and read. I mean, there's a much broader history that isn't well that well understood. I mean, in terms of yeah, this 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 story unfolding in public. I mean, th- th- with Nick Davis and the hacking scandal, you know, he, Nick Davis was writing articles which were sort of um, never quite broke the story for a few years before the whole thing just sort of exploded um, across right. the media. So I think it's probably not as unusual as you think, and. Okay. Also, the I mean, if you think of how blogging works, I mean, blogging's day is sort you know, blogging sort of faded slightly. But if you think um, at the sort of heyday of blogging, where you had political blogging and attempts to sort of expose, um, yeah, disinformation and um, hidden agendas within the press and the government, I think you could see a similar sort of thing. You know, somebody publish a piece. People respond to it, and people take the story, and it's almost like you get this kind of crowdsourcing of um, right. of investigative work. So I guess it it probably reflects some of that. But again, like it's a political economy of attention, isn't it? It's like you've got why would you invest as an editor for a year in a story when you could have it leading the news agenda um, piece at a time for you know for a month? Like it doesn't it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So sure. I mean, I agree. It would be nice if they. Um, had a fully packaged story, but then they might end up with no story. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't mean to sort of. I don't mean to be um, to, to sort of do down the, the, the great work that the observer's doing. It's just that it's sort of it's pointing in so many directions, which might be the yeah. nature of the story. It might be the nature of networks. You know, the networks have lots of nodes and lots of links, and so you know, you follow one suddenly or somewhere else, or you suddenly or somewhere else, and mm. one minute you're. I mean, those infographics the observer. Do, to create to show how Steve Bannon is linked to Robert Mercer is linked to um, Vote Leave is a bit linked to Nigel Farage, you know, and you sort of it's kind of dizzying. But maybe the story is dizzying. Maybe we need to be dizzy. So I don't I don't want to be um, I don't want to be dismissive, and I, I certainly don't want to sort of belittle the, the 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 threat that they are trying to get their arms around. It's just that it's sometimes it's kind of overwhelming. But you know, context mm-hmm. is important, isn't it? And, and had the result of the Brexit referendum been the opposite, if, if Remain had won by 52%, and if Cambridge Analytica had been doing what they were doing every bit as effectively as they, they, as it were, they did in, in reality, this story would not be investigated and there would, there would be no interest in their, their shenanigans. I mean, this no. does come out of, um, as it were, a dislocation in normal service that yeah. Brexit represents. When Cameron conceded the referendum, I don't think it occurred to him that they might lose. Because, like, I've seen data from 2014 where support for EU membership is running about 65%. Right. Um, and the idea that these kind of, like, the, you know, the, he called them kind of, like, swivel-eyed lunatics or whatever. You know, he thought that UKIP and that their political constituency were a fringe of retired colonels and, you know, died in the war racists, and they thought they would trounce them. 
and they they come out of trouncing the independence referendum. So, mm. I, I mean, I, I, once it... sorry, I mean, I think so. I, my sense, and this goes back to this issue about, as it were, the threat or the the disruption that Facebook and the platforms pose to the idea of the liberal public sphere. My sense is that the the the, the agenda of the politicians is essentially to restore the illusion of a liberal public sphere. Um, uh, that which is to say uh, uh, a public sphere in which all points of view are represented, you can access um, a plurality of views, but the overwhelming preponderance of information and analysis and perspectives will come from a broadly pro-status quo point of view. So most of the material that people access is safely centre-left to centre-right. Now, mm. as I say, I think you're absolutely right. It's an open question as to how far propaganda or the manipulation of the platforms explains Trump or explains Brexit or, or indeed explains um, the rise of Corbyn. I mean, as a sidebar, I don't think it's... I, I think without, without online communications, the Corbyn campaign never happens. Um, yeah. Because you would have had a degree of isolation by individual constituency parties. Every single person who, who favoured Corbyn would have been convinced... Um, by very authoritative voices, that they were a marginal and irrelevant yeah. minority. They, a, minor, a majority for Corbyn discovered themselves to, to, to a much more significant extent than the Brexit victory. That majority for Corbyn discovered itself online, I think. Yeah, um, well, I mean, this is a generational thing as well, because as we know, I mean, the, um, the Corbyn vote, I know the youth quake thing turned out to be exaggerated, but nevertheless, it was a largely a kind of under let's say, under 45's um, movement, um, whereas, uh, as we know, the Brexit vote was, you know, pretty much the opposite. So, um, uh, you know, so I, I um, and I know, I mean, there has been studies done of the ways in which memes and humorous content and Facebook content and so on was, was so much more successful for the Corbyn campaign than, than it was for oh, the yeah, Conservatives. I, mean, I, I think the general election is, a, is a, a, another and much messiest story, but I think but his leadership campaign in 2015, um, I think could have, in a pre-digital era, I think it could have been crushed by, by the overwhelming kind of authority of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And, and part of its disorientation f- from 2015 to 2017 is the sense that the MPs are supposed to run the party. They're supposed to say what happens. Um, and certainly, the, you know, the, the core of MPs around the shadow cabinet in 2015 was supposed to decide, essentially, what was, mm. a, what was an acceptable path forward. And the overwhelming consensus in the Parliamentary Labour Party was that Miliband had been too left-wing. So, mm. I, you know, I see, so I see the rise of Corbyn, in a sense, as another example of normal service being disrupted. Um, yeah. And if you look at... The, Google published a um, plans to... Uh, to support responsible journalism last week. Um, and they are clearly seeking to align themselves with what we sometimes call legacy media to re-establish an information environment where properly sourced, properly funded journalism takes centre stage again. Um, with all the implications that, that has for shoring up professionalism, but also, I think, for, for re-establishing a transmission belt or transmission mechanism between political elites through the media into mass audiences. So, um, so my, yeah, my, my, my take on it is slightly different in that I, there are different ways of regulating Facebook. Um, and the way that I think our politicians are keen to regulate Facebook is not, um, is not the spirit of enlightenment revived. <laughs> uh, I think it's more it's more about re- restoring the old model of liberal mystification. Right. There's a couple of things they, they seem to be interested in, isn't it? It's like, first of all, is the um, the problem of funding, right? So they're worried about the um, movement of advertising revenue away from the legacy media, as it were, um, into these content. So that's one thing, and that, that's a particular section of the political class and, and sections of the legacy or traditional media, whatever you want to call it. And then there's this question of how information proliferates, which tends to be discussed in terms of fake news. But but Facebook seem sort of relatively responsive to that um, to that pressure that they should um, adjust their algorithms to 
deal with these kinds of issues because it seems to me they don't they don't particularly want their platform to be politicised. As I, I don't think, although I'm, I'm sure you're right, well, that they're, they're hardly Zuckerberg's hardly going to be intimidated by um, British MPs, but also I, I doubt he's particularly interested in um, in some sort of political squabble over um, fake news. No, no, I, I'm sure I'm sure Zuckerberg would love to sort of you know put. I mean, he can't put the whole genie back in the bottle because, I mean, clearly Facebook has been um, has been integral to, to recent political developments. Um, but I mean, he, I think he, I suspect. I mean, you know, I'm not a kind of Zuckerbergologist, but I mean, I suspect that he, um, you know, if there was something he could do to, to to stop Facebook ending up in these kind of constant controversies <laughs> around election democracy, he would do it. It's just that you know that thing doesn't doesn't exist at the moment. I mean, given the nature of what how Facebook works, so um, yeah. I think he, I mean I think you're right. I mean I think that the company was very successful because of its like deep indifference to to certain ethical norms about privacy and certain sort of presumptions about how people should be how their data should be treated. Um, and I think for a long time like the public pronouncements of, of Facebook about news, about um, its its responsibilities as a, as it were as a as a quasi publisher, just seemed incredibly complacent. They just didn't see that they were they were pushing against the hard limits of what was acceptable. Um, and I, I, you're right; they're now engulfed in a scandal that probably could have been avoided by a degree of self denial around mm. election time and just not taking huge amounts of dodgy money from hedge fund guys. I mean, my, my I, again, I, this um, my my sort of general um, assumption with think about Silicon Valley. I mean, it's not something I, I sort of do research on on tech giants, but. I often think you can learn quite a lot by taking them at their word in terms of what they say they're doing. But it's often it's often their kind of idealism is often part it's often central to the problems that they pose. So I mean, Zuckerberg, if you read his open letters, he believes that what he's doing is creating the basis of global community. So he he sort of sees himself as a um, as the sort of um, you know he's going to deliver a kind of new sort of you know Kantian perpetual peace in a sense some kind of uh, something that will use friendship to bring the entire world together and it's sort of I think it's the sort of naivety and the failure to to, to, to understand actually building a machine and a machine that can be in, you know in contemporary parlance weaponized um, that that it sort of means that he's completely kind of doesn't understand what he's doing in some way. Equally, I think Google really sort of you know there's this sort of mathematical kind of naivety of thinking, oh, if we could just get our hands on the entire world's information, we could make it kind of searchable, and wouldn't that be good? And it's sort of this complete failure to recognize that there are already ways of organizing information out there in terms of publishing and forms and norms of copyright and you know norms of private information exchange and so on. This complete failure to recognize what already is out there. I mean, in, in Zuckerberg's case, it's the failure to recognise there is there are democratic institutions and elections and campaigns and publishers and newspapers and the sort of trampling over all of that sort of stuff is is born, I think, not less out of aggression than out of sort of a a kind of complete kind of naivety and sort of failure to think outside of one's own ideology in a way. I mean, Uber is is another case entirely because I mean, as the name suggests, it's quite clear what Uber is really all about, which is they sort of you know I mean there is a kind of you know, a sort of wanton destruction at the heart of it. And I think the same is true with Amazon. But um, but I, I do think that Zuckerberg's problem is, is is sort of, he really thinks he's a nice guy and that friendship will save the world. Um, and then you sort of try and crowbar every type of relationship into the into the kind of concept of friendship and discover that it all goes horribly wrong. I mean, that, that, but again, I mean, this is, you know, purely my own sort of hermeneutics of, 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 of Zuckerberg. It's not based on, 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 on any particular empirical insight. But. No, I'm sure that's true, though. I'm sure there, there, there was a sort of degree of um, mathematical panglossianism going mm. on. And, and it's probably, as you say, it's part of, a, 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 of an inability in Silicon Valley for people to really reflect on the, the ideology that in which they're immersed, and to, to you know be unaware of the extent to which that ideology is is as it were constructed. It's constructed from outside. It's constructed from um, previous generations, uh, and and it goes alongside this sort of very supine um, relationship between Facebook and Google and 
the NSA and GCHQ, um, they when 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 the national security state came knocking, they just they gave up the crown jewels immediately. I mean, they understood that, that essentially that they are creatures of the US UK state, and and it's it's striking. It seems to me how much more as it were, message promotion has been about the Cambridge Analytica story um, as against the Snowden revelations, where there you really do have a story about the structural integration of a mil- you know, military intelligence apparatus and the global communication platforms. Um, yeah. It's not, that's not, as it were, sales. And that your point about this being sort of, there's a lot of sales literature floating around, it's really important. Um, um because, you know, Cambridge Analytica is selling a product. Um, I've actually got, I've excitingly got a drill outside, which I don't think is part of the US, UK intelligence state trying to disrupt my communications, but I'm just going to close the door. I mean, I mean the, the obvious difference um, between the Snowden revelations and, and what's going on right now is that um, I, don't want to, I don't want to suggest that the, you know, that the, the liberal media establishment is wholly cynical in all of this. I'm sure. I think there's a lot of really kind of good and important reporting going on and, and discussion. But nevertheless, 2016 was a great shock for people who lived in London and New York and Boston, um, and um, uh, and in and there that occurred where kind of basic a basic sense of reality was kind of was sort of thrown up into the air. And there is a sort of deep, um, I think, first of all, shock, but also a, a kind of curiosity about the world that has been provoked by those events. Actually, a really kind of healthy curiosity about the world in some way. I mean, it's worth, you know, since talking about the media, it's worth also noticing that places like the, the Financial Times has suddenly gone off to try and understand things like, you know, there was that wonderful piece by um, Sarah O'Connor about Blackpool. Um, mm-hmm. never would have been um, about the sort of, you know, the problem of, of, of health and mental health problems and, and, mm-hmm. and the mortality rate and so on. Never would have been written in 2015. Um, this sort of sense of like, you know, what is going on in the world? Um, I think in some ways that's the the kind of positive aspect of 2016 for, 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 for the media and for all of us, I think, is that the, the, the desire to try and understand what's really going on out there. And I think the, the best of that is, is, is when people actually try and understand uh, inequality um, and uh, you know, the economist has, has sort of suddenly noticed that output per hour in West London is eight times higher than it is in South Wales and that this is the greatest regional inequality of any country in uh, Western Europe. Um, and you know, these sort of, sort of insights that simply weren't in circulation unless you were a Marxist geographer until 2016. Um, so that's the kind of positive side. But I think there is the sense that, you know, that has also cast light onto, onto Facebook and, and data analytics. And, and the Snowden revelations didn't do that. The Snowden revelations didn't do that sort of kind of fundamental shaking of, of your sort of political ontology or your, your sense of, of how politics works. I mean, it was like, oh, right, yeah, you know, um, you know, I mean, there's always been this kind of lurking sense that, 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 that huge quantities of data are being scraped and we don't really know where they end up and, oh, they end up in the hands of the NSA. Um, I mean, a lot of this, I, I mean, I, I don't think that it really kind of did any violence to people's sense of, of, of what the political is in some way, the, the Snowden revelations. In some ways, it kind of confirmed a lot of, of our suspicion as to where power lies. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, really, to be a little bit more cynical about the liberal response to some of these events. I mean, it does seem to me that, you know, a particular group of people, yeah, have had their world shaken in a way which has just never happened before in their their adult lives, you know, and they're just, yeah, obviously they're disorientated by that. I mean, I noticed the other day that Andrew Adonis, um, his latest thing is like saying that the BBC is, um, is politically biased. And also that, you know, it's not keeping up with um, developments in technology and the rest of it. You know, this was something which was obvious to people who who were out of step with the BBC's kind of um, political centre of gravity, which was very much in keeping with the Andrew Adonis's of this world until very recently. And then we get this huge sort of political turmoil. And yeah, like the, the, the liberal response to that, 
I mean, on the one hand, it's that they're noticing things which which they hadn't ever noticed before. And I suppose one response to that is to say, well, yeah, um, it's completely self-interested that you decided that now elections aren't fairly conducted or that, um, you know, the people society. But um, on the other hand, yeah, at least there is some intellectual curiosity, I suppose. I mean, the... The Financial Times piece was was interesting, wasn't it? Because the only person I can think of as doing that kind of reporting probably does lots of it at, at the Guardian, doesn't he? But it just you're right; it just wouldn't have occurred to most journalists to actually go to a town and try and make sense of that in a more kind of um, you know really a sort of sociological kind of sensibility, which I think is is some of the you know, is what, what Will, you've, you've done a lot in, in your writings, which is try to combine a kind of cultural sociology, a sort of, in this case, kind of ethnographic sens- sensitivity and, and, and tension to political economy, which, you know, God knows has been lacking from, mm. from the media for a long time. Um, I wondered, it, Will, if, if you had some sort of sense about, uh, if you were running this Cambridge Analytica story, or if you thought there were... Uh, how would you would you be asking them to to look at different things? Do you do you think that there's a way in which this story could be approached um, outside of? I'm not talking about sort of news values here, but if you wanted to understand um, the role and significance of Cambridge Analytica, what is your current sort of feeling about um, the significance of the story or elements which you think are, are lacking? What what I think would be one thing which would be really helpful would just be to get a sense of what are the other companies out there doing this because they, they get kind of alluded to but we don't know sort of how they differ so I mean we know about Palantir that does similar sort of campaigns as, as far as I know I mean more to do with security services and immigration policy and that sort of thing um, by the way then, by the way that name Palantir is as Slavoj Zizek would say pure ideology in the, I don't know if you know it comes from the Lord of the Rings Right. Well, I mean, Peter Thiel is, is is a wonderfully sort of transparent ideologue. I mean, right. everything that he, all of everything you your worst fears about libertarian capitalists. I mean, he basically sort of wears it on his sleeve. So. <laughs> a Palantir was a seeing stone that allowed. Uh, anyway, I won't go into the geeky. No, what detail. is it? Well, I, sorry, what is it, Dan? I'm interested. It's a, it was a it was a piece of um, uh, like high sort of magical sophistication. Um, from an earlier age, that was it allowed the viewer to see things afar. Um, it's like a crystal ball. It's like a crystal ball, yeah. But one that would source would show you um, not not. I don't think differences in time, but different like different places. Uh, okay. So it was like a far seeing stone. Um, mm. And the fact that they call this kind of, this intelligence operation of um, Palantir is. Um, yeah, as you say, well, it's well, it's sort of refreshingly frank. My my other favourite example of that is that there's some lecture capture software that's being rolled out across campuses at the moment called Panopto. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, but um, no, anyway, to, to my point. So Palantir gets talked about. You know, that requires some some good um, investigation. But I mean, Clinton, Hillary Clinton had a had a data analytics um, tool which was called Ada. Uh, that was named after um, someone or other. Um, Ada Lovelace, not, I would guess. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it used different assumptions about things. It had its own particular... It also heavily influenced her campaign. It obviously misled her in certain ways. It would be interesting to know, kind of, you know, how did that work? Why did it mislead her? It would be interesting to know what was the budget um, for that. I mean, there was a, there was one really... There was an amazing piece in Mother Jones, actually, about, about Cambridge Analytica um, with... Really, quite a lot of access, it seemed. Quite a lot of, you know, um, uh, interviews and so on, which basically portrayed it that by the time so Cambridge Analytica had worked for the for the Cruise campaign and done a sort of pretty woeful job. I mean, you know, obviously Cruise didn't sort of crashed and burned, but there was a, a, a sort of in that piece the way it came across was that firstly the Cambridge Analytica was sort of, you know very, very boastful and basically went around the world winning contracts on the basis of, of, of a lot of sort of exaggerations and so on. Um, but also that they kind of arrived in the Trump campaign after he'd won the primary to discover that he had sort of no kind of 
data analytics capacity whatsoever. The whole thing was sort of very, very retrograde, and they sort of had to kind of start to patch things together using whatever whatever sort of tools and data they could lay their hands on, which may partly there was some sort of dodgy stuff going on, was that they were sort of starting from way behind the Democrats. So yeah. I think what we need to kind of also get our, get our heads around is, is what is the benchmark of, of, of technological sophistication in all of this? Um, because uh, as many people have pointed out, I mean, um, you know, I remember the first, the first person who was seen as a great sort of uh, social media politician in the sta- States was Howard Dean in the 2004 prim- Democrat primary. Um, and he used things like meetup.com and all that kind of stuff. And then Obama in 2008 and 2012 was celebrated as being this kind of uber modern 21st century politician because of the ways he used data and social media and so on. And then suddenly... 2016, it's like, oh, shock horror, it's a bunch of sort of Russian propaganda specialists using all this underhand military stuff. Now, I would like to know what exactly, where's the difference lie? I mean, that's what would be a good piece for Wired magazine or someone to, to write, would be to just to explain what are the different assumptions. And um, I mean, there are people, I mean, Jamie Bartlett has written a good piece for The Spectator about how things like micro-targeting work and how they don't work. And, and after all, you know, if given it was only sort of 20,000 people in, in, in Michigan that was that, that, that was um, uh, with, that, that led to Trump to win the state. You know, it is plausible to think that some micro-targeting could have, could have done some work there. But in, in order to, 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 to come to that conclusion, it would be good to know, you know, how much micro-targeting were the Democrats doing, you know, to try and push it in the opposite direction. We, no one has even seemed to have reported that. I assume that the Clinton campaign was flooding... You know, it's not. She famously did not spend much time in Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, and then she was hugely criticised after after um, the election result for not doing so. But one would presume that the reason she wasn't spending much time in Michigan was that all of the, you know, Michigan potential potential swing voters were being flooded with, you know, maybe it wasn't fake news, but stuff about how Donald Trump was a kind of uh, a sex offender, which is and was. But you know, that presumably there was. Um, content coming from the other side that was based on a, on a different set of pr- uh, psychological assumptions and, and analysis and, and, and so on. It wasn't that there was this wonderfully sort of folksy, romantic, um, uh, kind of low-tech Democrat campaign versus this kind of evil, Mercer-backed, uh, Russian-allied um, right. right. data analysts. I mean, quite the contrary from a lot of what we've read was that actually the Trump campaign had came from a standing start. I mean, and they, they were actually rather naive in a lot of what they were doing. So that, that I think is what's missing. I don't, I don't want to belittle the, the power of data analytics and to suddenly make out that everything was fine. And, um, you know, and actually, I mean, I, I had a line in my piece that made some people furious, my LRB piece saying that, you know, why was this all that much worse than what Alistair Campbell uh, Peter Mandelson and Philip Gould were doing in the 90s with New Labour. Now, obviously it's different, but my point was that this this notion of driving a marketing logic into a political campaign and to think about positioning, branding, um, you know, target groups and so on, this has been there since the, since the 1930s and there have been panics about it at each stage. There were panics about it during the 90s to do with Clinton and Blair and so on. So that, you know, this is what we need is a sort of comparative analysis to, to and if at the end of it, it turns out that Trump, thanks to Robert Mercer's money, had a level of intelligence and technical prowess that simply wasn't available to anyone else, then, you know, I think we, we really have grounds to be quite quite alarmed about the, you know, why do the sort of neo-fascist forces in society seem to be more technologically equipped than the than the liberal ones. So, I mean, and that would be a, you know, that, that would be a very, very concerning and, and, and important thing to, to establish. But I don't think we've established that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think one of the things going on in the, the it's not something I've studied closely, but in the Clinton campaign, they had a lot of, of kind of, they had a, an amazingly sophisticated data machine, but they were pushing really bad assumptions into it Yeah. about their ability to win over, mod, quote, moderate Republicans, you know, by through, through appeals to decency and, you know, civility and yeah. notions of kind of political um, probity. And they were completely, it seems to me, completely blind to that, that this deep sense of economic malaise um, mm. in, a, in a lot of the places that weren't on, you know, weren't in Boston, New York, um, or... Yeah, or, I mean, famously, um, the person who picked up on that the most, at the most senior level, was Bill Clinton. 
Um, and he, you know, he was arguing with the rest of the campaign, saying, "I because Bill Clinton was was the guy who went out there into Ohio and um, Indiana and all these sorts of places because he does that, that job incredibly well." And he would give his stump speeches and come back and say, "These guys, you know, we saw what happened with Brexit. These, the, you know, these folks are, are ready to vote Trump." And they would say, "They would say, shut up and do what you're told. Yeah, um, our data yeah. doesn't say that." Yeah. Um, now, I'm not, you know, saying Bill Clinton is a sort of wonderful human being, but he was famously had a kind of sort of you know a, a sort of empathetic um uh, quality of mind that yeah, was yeah. sort of unrivaled in recent political leaders which and and, and probably you know his wife d- did not have the same kind of um antenna and i think there was a sort of i'm not I, i'm not trying to say let's go for the sort of romantic kind of you know naturalized empathy is, is somehow sort of always more intelligent version but i think on this occasion the automation of empathy kind of was so Ada, the way it worked, as I understand it, was that they 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 got it to run sort of thousands upon thousands of 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 um, basically sort of wargamed the the election um, to, to see what was the most likely outcome. It's a bit similar to how sort of Nate Silver uses polling data. Um, is that you basically run kind of mock versions of the of, of the election on on the basis of different types of uh, of data sources and uh, different assumptions, and 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 you take the average. Um, and and I, and I think it was sort of they they did get misled by all of it. So the question is, why did they get so misled by it? And somehow Trump didn't get misled by it. I mean, they were they were getting very different reports about what was going on in the Midwest. Mm. And um, so it would be interesting to know, I mean, there has been some stuff written about this in the American media, and uh, the Mother Jones piece is, is particularly good about Cambridge Analytica. But I think that's where in the, in the, the British media hasn't been quite as strong uh, as yet. That's interesting, isn't it? It seems like the, the far right are very comfortable deceiving other people and the, and the liberal left are very comfortable deceiving themselves. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I think that's partly because they, you know, they they uh, they, they they educate themselves. They they read each other. They 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 get taught by each other at university. They, I mean, there's a certain sort of. Um, well, it becomes, I don't want to say it's an echo chamber because it's an echo chamber that I'm part of. So I'm, I'm reluctant to say that it's got no purchase on reality whatsoever. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, you know, that it, it is a sort of a, a mutually reinforcing system, which is, of course, exactly what populists are so good at, at pointing out. I mean, Farage has sort of, you know, he's got us banged to rights in some respects, you know. But, um, and uh, uh, but you know, he ultimately, of course. I, Barrage is the is, is the real cynic in amongst all of this, not me. I'm, I would be in my life. No, consider yourself a sort of Socrates amongst the liberal elite. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, 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 I teach for a living, so I have to sort of make out that I'm teaching about something other than, I have to believe that I'm teaching about something other than simply things that, that, that get circulated in podcasts <laughs> such as this. So, um, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, um, you know, we can all, we're all, we're all vulnerable, we're all guilty of our own sort of uh, epistemic kind of naivety in one way or the other. You are quite, and again, it's the, it's the cross, the cross that we bear, that we, we actually have to bear that in mind, whereas... People on the far right can be quite heedless about it. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, the, the problem is, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, well, but Cambridge Analytica are probably don't. Uh, but the, the, if you're selling something, then, of course, you're going to brag about it. I mean, you're not going yeah, I mean, to go to a meeting and where someone's secretly calling you and say, what can you do for us? Well, we're not really sure, to be honest. The data doesn't show where yeah. the are the Mother Jones piece suggests they don't really care, to be honest. I mean, that they the, the Mother Jones piece paints them as as sort of kind of cowboys on the. I mean, they were they were formed relatively recently, and they might be disbanded by the end of all of this. Um, but they will have kind of picked up some some facts along the way. So um, you know, they 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 sort of have been pretty footloose, and they've worked across jurisdictions where they think they can get away with quite a lot and they've brought back some techniques from those jurisdictions that, you know, suddenly there's a lot of pearl clutching when it arrives back on our doorstep, but they, 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 they've done it around the world. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, they, 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 um, I mean, people like Mercer, being a private equity um, uh, specialist, they're very good at understanding how to use law and contracts in order to um, make very large profits in vehicles that kind of almost don't exist. Um, you know that they that they that they exist for a short period of time in order to serve certain functions, and then you disband them again. I mean, mm. that's the kind of sort of capitalist uh, universe these companies are, are operating in. It's very difficult to hold it to account. Worrying. So, that, I mean, the whole 
issue of, of, of the role of very large quantities of private equity in, in our politics is, is, is something that is just as concerning in amongst all of this as the issue of very large quantities of, of private data. Um, and I think that, again, one in terms of the question of how would we report this better, um, one thing would be to try and help the reader understand how much of this is a story about about private money and how much is a story about about abuse of, of, of data um, because I mean these things of course uh, I actually had a Twitter exchange with an observer journalist about this where I pointed this out and he said well it's both you know and the point is that Mercer has, has long understood data and he's very good at putting his large quantities of money um, towards the analysis of large quantities of data and I think that's a very interesting point is you know and the Adam Ramsey piece is quite good on this as well where you get the kind of privatization of, of of sort of military propaganda operations and i think this is and, and Platt palantir is obviously the kind of the the, the sort of um, uber example of that um but i think we do also need to sort of you know somehow disaggregate the the, the problems of capitalism from the problems of of of, 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 of data analytics um and of course they they go together in certain ways to with different forms of property right different forms of of of, of corporate governance and so on but um you know, there's, there's a real danger of, of, of just allowing it all to collapse into one kind of ghastly conspiracy. Mm. Yeah, and it just becomes a story about a particular election that went went wrong, and how how are we going to explain that without yeah yeah really explaining it? Okay, well, um, unless everyone's got anything else to add, shall we wrap things up? No, I think that's a really great that's a, that's a great note to end on. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, absolute pleasure as ever. So, thanks again. Great. All right. Look forward to look forward to hearing it. Terrific. Yes, well. Cheers. Brilliant. All right. Thanks a lot.